Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm Tiernan Henry, host of the festival's Vinyl Hours. Vinyl Hours is a series of conversations with artists and creatives, tracing a musical journey through the soundtracks of their lives. Tom Waits reckons that songs are really just interesting things to be doing with the air. And here on Vinyl Hours, we think talking about them isn't too shabby either, even if it is only bravado. You can listen to the full playlists on Galway International Arts Festival's Spotify page. And if you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to Galway International Arts Festival, a non-profit organisation bringing the arts to people in Ireland and around the world. Head to giaf.ie and click Donate. Today's guest is Stephen Murta, a member of the hugely successful band The Academic. Originally from Rochford Bridge in Westmeath, Stephen and his brother Matthew formed the band with their friends Craig Fitzgerald and Dean Gavin in 2013. Their debut album, Tales from the Backseat, was released in 2018 and topped the Irish charts, and they've released a series of EPs and singles since the album was released. The band headlined the Heineken Big Top for the first time at Galway International Arts Festival in 2019, and the academic will be back next year for the July 2022 festival. Tickets are available from giaf.ie. But for today, we're here to talk about some of the music that moves Stephen. So without further ado, enjoy Vinyl Hours with Stephen Murta. So Stephen, you're sending us on a journey through the past with this uh, great playlist you've sent us. And remember, uh, for everyone listening in, just check out the Spotify page on Galway International Arts Festival and you can check, you can listen to the music. Um, so thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm I'm very excited to uh, to be on, kind of talking about music like this, and um, it's a, it's an interesting way to think about music. I'd never really thought about the soundtrack of my life before, and kind of the <laughs> the songs that might have like defined certain years or moments in yeah. my life. So I'm I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Cool, great. Listen, well, should we jump right in? So, so your first song is "We Used to Wait." This is from Arcade Fire's Grammy Award-winning 2010 album, "The Suburbs," and according to Win Butler frontman of the band the album is it's a letter from the suburbs that's essentially what they were aiming at and most of it was recorded uh in his and uh regine chassang's home in montreal then they did some more work in quebec and in new york city and i think what they he said i read a great interview with them he said what they were trying to do was get a mix of depeche mode and neil young in the album which is a, a fine way of talking about it i think that kind of sums up suburbs nicely doesn't it yeah exactly so when they, they recorded the album, they said they wanted to get the sound of the bands that they heard when they were young and what all of those crazy noises were. So, Stephen, Arcade Fire? Yeah, um, ma- massively important band for me. And there is a, a reason that I kind of wanted this to be the first song we talk about mm. and the first song on the playlist. I suppose sometimes people talk about like musical awakenings and Arcade Fire was like definitely my first one. My my childhood and my early teenage years can be very kind of distinctly defined by two musical phases. One of them uh, I, I still love and I'm still very fond of and one of them not so much. So the first one was like lots of 60s pop, like Otis Redden, all the Phil Spector stuff, Wallace Sound, uh, like the Ronettes, Beatles, Beach Boys, all that stuff. I loved it from a very early age and will till forever. And uh, But the other phase that I was very much into was like, UK kind of lad indie 
kind of that brash oasis arctic monkeys libertines and that was like from from the ages of kind of like eight to maybe like 14 15 that was my kind of musical identity but then i remember my cousin jody who's about 15 years older than me he used to bring us down cds me and my brother matthew we used to burn them onto our computer remember that (laughs) and uh i remember one day he brought down i'm pretty sure the three albums were it was like a jamie t album i can't remember the name of it i think it was a badly drawn boy record as well but then he had neon uh, neon bible and this was before the suburbs was out Mm. and i remember hearing neon bible and just like getting obsessed and going down youtube rabbit holes discovered funeral we used to cut then we started covering rebellion in cover bands and stuff from and i just completely kind of like it arcade fire were the band that showed me that there was more to alternative music than than what i was listening to there was more to it than that kind of british oasis eric monkeys thing mm-hmm. um that i still have a huge time for that it's just I, I don't go out of my way to listen to that stuff anymore but um arcade fire was like the band that kind of led me to discover maybe like lcd sound system interpol vampire weekend um stuff that i would be more into and then also one, one of the one of the like the greatest indoor gig i've ever been to was the three arena in Dublin, me and Matthew, my brother, who's in the band, went up after we got obsessed with Arcade Fire on the suburbs tour. We got to see it was an incredible lineup in the three arena. It was Arcade Fire headlining, Vampire Weekend were the first support, and right. Devendra Devendra Banhart was the was the next support. And it was just it was a very special. I've seen Arcade Fire a couple of times, but like indoor the enclosed atmosphere, that trilogy of perfect albums of Funeral into Neon Bible into the suburbs. I remember very, very clearly that they played My Body is a Cage, which they never play live. And I just, you know, every so often in your life, you get like a live music moment where you're just like, wow, I will never, ever forget this. Yeah. And that was mine. And you know the way they have like a million people on stage. I remember the guy who like, um, I think he's a butler as well. He was running around with like a, like a rack tom or a snare and he was swinging it around his neck and it hit him in the face and there was blood all down his face and he just kept performing just and kept, kept performing. going yeah it was uh yeah a very very important band for me in kind of like um shaping my my musical life i suppose yeah and i think what's important what one thing i really like about them as well is i think they're such a good band just as a band you know and this the albums all sounded great but as well they could do it live and when you see them on stage, as you say, like there's, I don't know, there's 10, 12, I don't know how many people there are on stage. And it's hard to keep up with them because they all play loads of different instruments, you know. So they're jumping around from guitars to accordions to, you know, run around with drums and things. And yet it never feels cluttered. You know, no, it's, it, no. never, it, it, it doesn't feel showy, you know, like, oh, look what we can do. It no. just works for the music so, so much, you know. That's what's it, it. It never feels showy, but it also never feels pretentious. That they, like mm. they they can release an album like the Suburbs, which is like kind of you know like a like a concept album about like even take that song that I've picked. We used to wait in particular. I suppose he's yeah. talking about like te- like technology moving at an unsustainable kind of rate and how we're losing kind of the magic and the romance of that human interaction. Mm. They can they can do stuff like that and have it come across as genuine because that is who they are. And it, it never seems, and it, it also, it's not, it's not preachy. It's not like, uh, it's not like them saying, oh, everything was better before and now things are terrible. Oh. It's yeah. uh, it's kind of like, it's, it's a very romantic and nuanced look at, at kind of how, how society is changing. 
and um yeah even that that line was in we used to it's now our lives are changing fast and everything's speeding up and that the strings building and the, and the drums are building and it gets more intense and more intense and um i just i love that band to bits yeah and the thing as well i like about them is they seem to really enjoy being on stage you know when you i mean i know some of the songs are quite intense and so on but i think you're right there's a there's a great room like there's a great romance about them i think they love being they love playing live it's really yeah. obvious from that that they love playing live and that they love interacting with the audience you know and more than just you know good evening dublin it's great to be back in ireland yeah, yeah, you know yeah. or whatever i mean you know they actually just seem to really get off on getting the audience off as well which yeah. is you know do you know do you know it's strange as well they can they can be a band who are thematically can be very heavy they're like even like funeral funerals a heavy album and parts yeah. in the on bible like my body is a cage and stuff is heavy mm-hmm. as well and the entirety of the suburbs kind of has this like mist over it. but yet their live performances are so joyous yeah and it, and it seems so like um uh, like communal i don't know if that's like a family thing because there's a because there's a good few butlers on stage yeah. you know and stuff. but um <laughs> yeah. it's it's incredible how how, how kind of celebratory and joyous yeah. their live performances can be for a band who you know would uh yeah i mean i'm sure people who aren't fans of arcade fire could, would probably like accuse them of being like depressing you know and yet yeah. their their live gigs are so incredibly um filled yeah, with joy. they are joyous aren't mm. they you know and so listen we're, we're going to change pace slightly i suppose in a way um going back to 1967 um and I think what's interesting about this, it's almost the piece that you've chosen. It's a Beatles track, but it, it's it's almost as complex as, you know, what, what Arcade Fire were getting up to. And Arcade Fire had probably more tracks to play with. Because, um, again, one of the things I read was the engineer who who worked on, on the suburbs said it was a horrible job to mix down all the tracks. He said some of the things had 30 or 40 tracks and, you know, tr- three drum kits, eight guitars, you know. And if you go back to 1967, um, this was the Beatles um, in Abbey Road. And what you've picked, it's, it's, it's a really interesting choice. I think it's Penny Lane that you've picked because it was recorded as a standalone single. So this was a double A side. Which and, Strawberry Fields, yeah. Yeah. And when they recorded it, was Revolver was out. They were getting ready to make their next album. Um, mm-hmm. And they put out a single because they had to. They were contractually obliged to put out a single. Um, yeah, yeah. And then... Being the Beatles, they said, well, we can't put that in the album, you know, when when we do the album. (laughs) That's what's incredible to me, even like before we get into Penny Lane, the fact that whenever these like greatest album conversations come up, like the Beatles, like Revolver's always there, rightfully so, Abbey Road, Sgt. Pepper, and the singles were never on the albums. Like you said, like uh, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields was a double A side that kind of were recorded in the Sgt. Pepper sessions. Could you imagine adding... Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, who already maybe the greatest album ever. It just yeah. it like, and you can say that like what was Revolver had uh, it was a paperback writer in Rain, and uh, was it like Day Tripper off uh, Rubber Soul and like it's crazy. All these singles yeah. weren't on the albums, and yet we still discuss these albums as rightfully so the greatest ever made. It's crazy. Apparently, when they were recording this, McCartney wrote most of this one. So obviously it was a Lennon McCartney, but this was mm-hmm. one of McCartney's. Um, but apparently when they were recording it, he was listening to Pet Sounds. Um, anytime they weren't recording, he was putting Pet Sounds on. And uh, again, like I was saying, the, this was a contractually obligated single that they had to put out a single. Mm-hmm. And the, again, the engineers were talking about that. What 
McCartney was trying to get was he was re- after this, what he called a really clean American sound, mm. which is what he was hearing on Pet Sounds. And I think what's really interesting, one of the things that's really interesting about this is I think is that in this block of time, you know, so Pet Sounds came out middle of 66, Dylan's Blonde and Blonde came out a month later or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Revolver came out a month later. You know? yeah. And then a year later, the Beatles are making Sgt. Pepper. And in between, they throw out this single. So tell us about Penny Lane and what do you think? Well, I'm sure when people do this like soundtrack their lives stuff and people include the Beatles, I'm, I'm sure there's people like rolling their eyes and being like, oh, another person including the Beatles or whatever. But it would genuinely be so fundamentally dishonest for me to not include a Beatles track. Mm. Like I said, that like the early phases of my my life, like I I grew up in a Beatles house. The only reason I can and the only reason I do play guitar is because of the little black book of Beatles. I, I'm looking at it right now; it's in bits. I learned to play. I remember doing like CD CD for the start of "I Want to Hold Your Hand" and learning like all that. That is the reason that I play music. So it would be extremely dishonest for me to not have a Beatles track in there. Um, Pe- Penny Lane. I'm I'm a McCartney man. I I I've gone through phases, but like I have mostly been a McCartney man for my entire life as a bass player as someone who genuinely adores pop music and and melodies and um look it's just a little slice of his genius isn't it like it paints Mm. such a kind of evocative picture of 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 Liverpool in I suppose yeah like the, the the late 40s or the 50s or whenever he grew up there and um what I found as I get older all my favorite pieces of art kind of have that kind of experiential thing where it it kind of it's overwhelming to your senses where like it paints such a strong picture of a place a time and that that goes across music movies as well like all my favorite movies have and tv shows have that where you feel like you're living in the place it nearly stops becoming like a viewing experience and it becomes purely just an experience it's like you're living in it and that's what penny lane does to me it just completely it completely like takes me there and um I'm I'm useless with music theory. I'm not like a clever person when it comes to music theory, but I think I know the music theory behind behind Penny Lane and like it's insane. It's like the downwards key change going into the chorus. It starts in, in like B major and then goes to the parallel minor halfway through the verse and that's how he can get down to A major for the choruses. Yeah. Even like it's just like r- when you talk about like great composers of like kind of the, the the modern era if if you're talking about like Gershwin or Cole Porter or whatever like McCartney's there he's there there's no doubt about it he was a genius and um yeah like you said at, at the start like that is that the best single ever put out like the double a side of Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields it perfectly shows the duality of that songwriting partnership of like uh of Lennon and McCartney it's like them both reflecting on areas of Liverpool of their childhood in kind of both their distinct sounds and they're both masterpieces in very different ways yeah one thing i I really again i really like about penny lane is that both of them talked about writing the lyric and how the lyric essentially was no i did see that man yeah i did pass that you know everything is literally observed Mm. and it's you know penny lane is where obviously where they there was a, a bus stop i guess that they both used when they were younger you know that the bus would go by it so you think what they've done is they've picked these just purely mundane day-to-day observations. Mm. And then he's put it on this, as you said, it's this little mini symphony, which is just about three minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of think, two years before, it was CDG, CDG, you know, yeah. maybe one minor chord. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, that, you know, and, so, and the, the transition, I think, for them, I suppose, to go from 
you know, these really hardworking gigging musicians um, from the late 50s going into the early 60s, just to where they had a little bit more space to start exploring things. Yeah. And you're right. And I think where you get this, obviously having George Martin on board was probably quite useful as well. But this complexity of the music is more than, you know, this isn't an arranger or producer. This is all from McCartney. And I suppose being able to formulate probably what was going on in his head, you know, a sound he could hear in his head, but able to produce that is astonishing. And as you said, you know, these little transitions within the song, if you get to this point, but you need to get to a chorus, how do you do that? Well, this is how you do it, you know, Mm. and it's perfectly seamless. And of course, when you hear it, it sounds perfect. It mm. sounds yeah, that's exactly right. It's you know? it's it's one of his greatest bass lines as well, and yeah. that's like uh, that's a very hotly contested category, you know. Yes, <laughs> and just like <laughs> the the way it descends down, but then sometimes the melody's going up, and the yeah. way he he can sing about all these like mundane things, like you're saying, like yeah. the the banker never wears a Mac or them, that like the fire truck stuff, and make it so like uh, genuine and childlike, not child, well, kind of childlike, but like more nostalgic and. Uh, it's yeah. just, um, yeah, like it's just a little snippet of the genius of McCartney. Yeah. And I suppose just, you know, for your next track, we're staying, you know, in the same broad era with three more geniuses, I think, you know, um, uh, Hal David, Burt Bacharach and Dionne Warwick. And uh, what you've picked is, and I suppose this goes back to what you were saying at the start. It's it's just this gorgeous single, I, I Say a Little Prayer. In studio on the 9th of April, 1966, this is when you could go in in one day and make a single like that. Um, and apparently, again, Bachrach, when he worked with Dionne Warwick in the in this part of the sort of mid and early 60s, he said typically they'd only do one or two takes on any song, but they did 10 takes apparently on this song. And Backrock said, I don't think we've gotten it. They weren't even happy with it, were they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then she said, no, it worked, you know, and then it, it's this monster of a hit. And he goes, oh, OK, maybe we did get it right. You yeah. Know? So, again, is this one of those songs that was just in the house when you're growing up? Well, the, this one, if you, if you put a gun to my head right now and you said, what's the greatest song ever written? I would say it's I Say a Little Prayer by Bert Backrock mm-hmm. and Hal David. That is my favorite song ever. So I did want to sneak it in. And I'm sure there's many people listening going like yeah but but the aretha franklin version the aretha one is the version of that song and they're they're right they're probably right but i wanted to include this song because uh backrack and david is like my favorite songwriting partnership and i think so many of my favorite songs ever are backrack and david compositions mm-hmm. and dion warwick uh in, in my opinion was the greatest singer of backrack and david uh compositions I say a little prayer, walk on by, uh, do you know the way to San Jose? I'm sure there's a million more. There definitely is. <laughs> mm. But um, yeah, she was the, the the perfect voice and what an incredible voice and what a performer. Even over the last few days, I've been watching her performance of that song on the Ed Sullivan show and it's it's breathtaking. She's just incredibly beautiful and her voice is like sore and, and just, it, it's an amazing song. And it, like you asked me, did, was this song like, in the house when I was younger or anything. The the way I think about Burt Backrack and Hal David and their songwriting is I can't remember the first time I heard any of their songs. It's like they've always just existed. And to to me that is like the more I thought about it, I thought that was the perfect way to sum up their partnership. Yeah. Like can you remember the first time you heard like uh 
like raindrops keep falling on my head or like close to you or um no of course you can't they've just nope. always existed they've always yeah. been songs and it's that like f- familiar familiarity of of their of the writing that kind of makes it so genius while also being unbelievably complex like yeah. really tricky time signatures Burt Bacharach another genius composer in the same mold of Brian Wilson McCartney all them all them guys it just like strange chord choices very i love them them little tight brass sections that are in like all of his tracks it was really tricky to just pick one back rack song i could have done this entire podcast with only back rack songs for years <laughs> i know i just said i thought i think this is the greatest song ever written for years um i thought close to you by the carpenters was the greatest song ever written and you couldn't convince me otherwise so the fact that that didn't even make it in or walk on by didn't make it in or some of the dusty springfield stuff um yeah, it's just a testament to how much I absolutely love him. And like, not just as a riser, like he produced it, he arranged it. It's like, it's it's another bit of like absolutely terrifying genius, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when, when he played, um, he played at the, the festival in Galway two or three years ago. I can't remember, maybe three or four years ago. I can't quite remember now. And every single song you went, oh, yeah. Mm, yeah, oh, yeah. that as well. Oh, Jesus, that's another yeah. one of his, you know. And you kind of think of... This was just this was just whatever ninety minutes of you know a, a career squeezed into ninety minutes. It wasn't yeah. like okay, I need to play the first song again because I've run out of songs. This was probably how do we squeeze it down to ninety minutes? It always reminds me of that quote um, when Gershwin was in in Paris and Gershwin did a tour in Europe in the early twenties, and he met um, I can't remember which one of the avant garde composers, and. Uh, your man played Gershwin a piece of this, you know, th- this harmonious piece of music. And then Gershwin played him some of his and he apologized. And your man says, don't apologize. Music is music. It's mm-hmm. all music, you know. And I think you're right. I think sometimes we overlook uh, the things that seem to have been there all the time. And because Absolutely. they're so familiar, we kind of sometimes overlook just how good they are. Because as you say, I can't, I can't remember. I completely that stuff agree. was just all you grow up and it's always there. You yeah. turn on the radio and there's at some point during the day, you'll hear one of those songs and you'll, you go, I don't, I, I don't own that album, but I know every word to that song and everyone in the car knows every word to that song and everyone in the shop or whatever it is, knows the words to that song. You know, I remember, I remember a couple of years ago, I was watching a thing on BBC four and it was, the program was called sings Bacharach and David. And I, 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 I wanted to watch it because I was a fan at the time. And a song came on and it was, uh, oh, is it still, it's still a black or someone. And it's like the, there is always someone there to remind me, you yeah. know, that one. And yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, I don't know this song. And then two choruses in, I was like, yeah, I, I know this song. I don't know how I know this song, <laughs> but, I, but I do. I do. I absolutely do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, know, I was also very tempted, tempted to include, you know, this guy's in love with you by Herb Albert, the great trumpet player. Yeah. And oh, if if I could if I could sing at all, if I was any good of a singer, I'd, and I could, if you said I could only sing one song as like a party piece or a performance, that's, that's piece, your one. Yeah. Oh, this guy's in love with you. What a song! Yeah. It's just yeah. so good. And um, yeah, I know I've spent a lot of time probably talking about Bacharach, but like Hal David as a lyricist, I think that the story behind I say a little prayer was that he was writing it from the perspective of someone, an American wife, as as mm-hmm. as their husband was a soldier in Vietnam, and just kind of praying that um they'd yeah. make it through the day and that she would yeah. do and um his, his deceptively simple lyrics that just like beat themselves into your frontal lobe and never ever leave <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. And, 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 and you go back to exactly what you say, you know, you hear one of these things in the radio and you go, oh, I don't know this. And then you realize I do know it and you're humming yeah. it or singing it and you know what the next line is. Yeah. <laughs> and again, you think, but I don't own this. So how do I know it? And I think the, some of these songs have just become, you know, sometimes I think um, with, with, say with an album that you might be particularly close to, you know, an artist mm. you're particularly close to, you really like their stuff and you, you know, you immerse yourself in it. But I think what's really interesting as well, you, you, you'd say it definitely say about the Beatles, it seems to be cultural, you know, that it seems to be the entire culture is immersed in this stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, everyone knows these things without knowing how they quite know these things, you know. I would say that I say a little prayer as a song, whether it's the Dionne Warwick version, the Aretha version, which it's it's ingrained in, in Western psyche. And mm-hmm. that's like, that's that's the greatest thing you could possibly hope to achieve with a pop song, I think. Yeah. That it's like, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what age bracket you're with. When you put on that song, everyone's clicking along to it, and everyone yeah. knows. Everyone knows yep. the chorus, yep. and everyone, yeah. and everyone likes it. You're not going to meet <laughs> someone who's like, ah, oh, no, not for me, not for me. Yeah, it's like, no. what you don't, you don't like Aretha Franklin? What is wrong with you? Exactly. And I suppose one of the good things about it is it's it, it's a song of minding yourself, but it's a it's a love song, and it takes us nicely, I suppose, in a way to your next track as well, because it's a it's a change in pace in a way. But what's really interesting again about this is it's another love song and it's from yeah. 1983 and it's Talking Heads. Um, this must be the place, naive mm-hmm. melody. And David Burns said it's it's a real honest kind of love song. I don't think I've ever done a real love song before. So we moved from the Beatles and Dionne Warwick right up into, um, I suppose, 1983 New York, which it really is. So why this? Yeah, so... Uh, th- if I said that Arcade Fire was my first uh, kind of musical awakening, I I think in my later teenage years, Talking Heads was the second and most important one. Um, massive influence on me as a musician, songwriter, or a human being. Um, lyrically, David Burns kind of vocal deliverance, and maybe most importantly, Tina Weymouth as as a bass player. Um, unbelievably underrated, and. Uh, yeah, just like, wh- where do you even start with This Must Be The Place? It's a really rare one for Talking Heads because so many of their songs you kind of um, associate with near- lyrically. There can be like uh, anxiety or like even comedy sometimes. And to have just this completely pure love song, you know, it's like what's rare is beautiful. The, the, I wish I had better Irish, actually. There's a great Irish turn of phrase for that's what what's rare is beautiful, but I just don't have the Gaelic. My apologies. <laughs> But um, yeah, like just hugely influential as a song unto me. Like even the way the bass line, the synth bass plays over and over and over again. We have a song on our first record called Why Can't We Be Friends, where I just play the same bass line the whole way through the song, the verse, the chorus. It's the same chord run, just different dynamics. And that's completely what I was trying to do. Um, I Believe it or not, the the version of This Must Be The Place from from Stop Making Sense, I think is my most listened to song ever on Spotify. Right, yeah, yeah. And I try to watch Stop Making Sense at least once or twice a year, just to remind <laughs> myself, that's what that's what live music is about to yeah. me. When I watch Stop Making Sense and I see, again, the joy, how innovative it is, um, how clever the music is without being pretentious, how brilliant they all are, how great they all look. To To me, like, that's, that is live music and that's yeah. just that's what makes me want to do what i do yeah and i think it, it, it it's interesting you bring back the arcade fire uh reference there in a way and i think it's 
there's a couple of things, I suppose. One is I think sometimes people forget just how good a band Talking Heads were, that they weren't just David Byrne with some other musicians. No, no, you know, that, that core of the four of them. Yep. You just think all of the things they brought are all of the things that made the band so good. You know, Absolutely. and obviously then, you know, they did, you know, when they toured, particularly say with this album, did more musicians and so on because it was, you know, part of the show and stuff. But I think it it it's sometimes it, it's really easy sometimes to forget that they were a band to start with. And this was um, when I was young, when I was a teenager, I suppose this all of this stuff was coming out. And I remember the thing was like how almost how icy and how clinical the early albums were. And then this one came along and you kind of think, is, is he singing? Is he, is he actually singing something personal here? Yeah. As opposed to, you know, something very cool and hip in New York. Here was something just a little bit more open. And you think, boy, he, there, there's humanity in there as well. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's very funny because everything on like Remain and Light is is very paranoid and anxious. Yeah, and same with Fear Music. And is it more songs about building and food? Like, there's yeah. even there's, there's comedy in the title of that album. Yeah. yeah, and then to have just like this pure love song, so rare. It it kind of makes you hope that they did more of that. But just the fact that it's just this little snippet and that it, in my opinion, the greatest song kind of makes it worthwhile. Yeah, that it's just the one time they ever did it. I love the lyrics. I love I love the verses open and and the home is where I want to be on, on both the um, on both the verses and I just something that really hits home with me is that idea of like home and and it's a love song and the, the idea that home isn't necessarily always a place home can be like uh, the feeling that a person gives you and um, yeah. yeah I guess it just on a, on a personal note it kind of reminds me of, like the relationship I have with my girlfriend and stuff and it's just that that idea of home not necessarily being a place is always kind of really um hit home with me and then i i was lucky enough to see david byrne on the american utopia tour at a festival in belgium holy moly holy <laughs> moly i i don't know what else to say that is that is the great is it the greatest show i've ever seen it's up there i mean like I, have you seen like the spike lee filmed version of uh, yes. american utopia yeah i i love i love the bit in that and i think it's before this must be the place where he says um basically he, he there came a point in his life where he realized that people would rather look at people than look at things and just that idea to strip away all the back line so it's just people and just the bare minimum of what they need and um we were playing at that festival in in belgium and um david Byrne was backstage with all his band and i just like i just sat at like a non-creepy distance and i just watched <laughs> him walk down the stairs yeah. with like all that incredible band and it's all it's so multicultural and uh just incredible musicians and i just like watched them descend down the stairs and go over to their stage and i went through to the main to the main gate and and saw the show and uh yeah it was just it was very emotional and um and i, I love that man to bits and like you said speaking in tongues is my favorite talking heads album it's got like girlfriend is better and burn down the house, burn down the the house yeah yeah slippery people the fact that maybe it was the one right before Stop Making Sense as well makes me love it even more. I don't know why. Yeah. It's just like that was their new songs at the time. I remember at the time, it, it's not that it was badly received, but I think people were just, I remember just at the time, people think, oh, this is a bit lightweight yeah, because yeah. it wasn't paranoid and it wasn't, yeah. you know, and, you know, because it wasn't all angular and, and also because of the, you know, these, the, the elements of funk that were starting to come into it, oh, you yeah. know, and kind of African music that was yeah, starting the, all to come the polyrhythm. Into it. And just, yeah. yeah. 
And yet, you know, some of the melodies, are, you know, were naive melodies. You know, they were really, really simple things, but it didn't it didn't make them any less uh, moving or complex. You know, just it was and that bravery to say, oh, this is it. This is the beat for the entire song and it yeah. will work. And, you and know, and it does. You know. It does. I heard, I heard I don't know if it's true. I assume it is. But I heard the story of how they came up with that is that they all swapped instruments. So maybe uh, right. David yeah. Byrne was like on the Juno or the synth or whatever it was. And yeah. um Tina Weymouth on guitar and Jerry is it Jerry Harrison on drums and Chris yep. on the or something like that mm-hmm. and they all swapped around and that's where the simplicity came from it was still yeah. very much the personality of the four like we were yeah. talking about how important it's yeah. not just David Byrne and I, I strongly agree with you there because yeah. I think like it's so important what Jerry brought to that band because he came from uh, Modern Lovers and so he kind of came from that like late 70s post-punk thing even before Talking Heads yeah yeah, it's truly, truly a great band. When you talk about like the great American bands, uh, from Talking Heads, right up there for me, no, no yeah. doubt about it. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, I saw this tour in Forest Hills in 1983. So I was I was doing my J1 in the states, and a guy I knew called me and he said, "I have an extra ticket for Talking Heads," and I said, "Oh, that's great. Sure, I'll just go along to that." <laughs> As you oh do, you know, God. 18, you know, you go, I go to another gig in New York, you know. Oh, my and goodness. Of course, you, and I was expecting, because it was of when it was, I knew the return, I knew the album. But, you know, obviously pre-internet, so you didn't, there was no, you had no sort of sense as to what to anticipate. So we went into Forest Hills and there's a bare stage. And you're kind of thinking, oh, Jesus, they won't be on stage for hours. There's nothing on the yeah. stage. And then David Byrne walks out and the gig starts, you know, yeah. and you're thinking, all right, I've never seen anything like this before or heard it, you know, and yeah, yeah, they were astonishing, astonishing band, you know. That's that's an incredible flex. I, I can't believe you just you just dropped that on me. Unbelievable, uh, it's, it's, unbelievable. It's it's an age thing. That's all it is. You know? <laughs> no, it's incredible. I'm unbelievably jealous. That sounds no. incredible. But just it's. I mean, the, as I said, the great thing about it was not really knowing anything about it, other than yeah. I like band, I like the album. But I didn't know anything about the tour, you know, yeah, so yeah. we're just kind of walking in, literally walking into this place going, oh, yeah, Forest Hills, you know. Um, so this, we're going to jump up a little bit to 2003 and we will move away from from love songs to, to let's let's just go straight to lust. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. why not? <laughs> exactly. So this is Stacey's mom by Fountains of Wayne. It, <laughs> so it is, absolutely is. It, is. Is it the greatest car song that cars never recorded? Well, it's funny you should say that. Um, I, I listen. People are probably wondering, like, how is this guy gone from the Beatles to Dionne Warwick talking about Burt Bacharach, and now we're talking about Fountains of Wayne? I have, I've loads of reasons to include this one to the point where I thought it would be kind of rude not to. Yeah. Um, first of all, I wanted, I wanted to include a song that r- would represent a time of my life that the more I look back on it, I realize how influential it was. And that was like. I was born in 95. So when all these like music channels like MTV Rocks and, and NME TV and all them and Kerrang and Q, when all them were like on TV, they were hugely influential into me. Like, again, learning instruments, falling in love with music, different types of music. And I remember so, so clearly like being in my neighbor's house um, in like 2002, 2003, 2004, and just like, Hey Yeah was on the music channels, the music video, Crazy in Love by Beyonce. Yeah. Uh, lots of Busted. I loved Busted back then. Remember them? Uh, Green Day, American Idiot was like starting to blow up. But the one I want to pick that is most unique and most personal to me is uh, is Stacey's mom. It's it's quite unique in that when you think back on, on that period of music, there was lots of strange things going on. There was like new metal was kind of big and 
it was a bit dodgy and Eminem was on the TV a lot. And then there was lots of like super cool stuff coming out of like New York, like Interpol and yeah, yeah, and all that. And um, there was lots of kind of like pop punk as well that hasn't aged well. You remember all that like Bowling for Soup stuff. And then came along this band out in New York that were like the polar opposite of cool. And they were like power pop. And I've since gone on to like really, really love bands like The Cars, Cheap Trick, Big Star. I love power pop. And um, this was definitely like, this was the moment that radicalized me into being a power pop fan for sure. (laughs) And um, yeah, I I love Stacey's Mom. I think it's like an absolutely perfect power pop song. And yeah, the the video was was uh, was hilarious. I think it was like yeah. a Fast Times at Richmond High thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just like I I remember it so well. I remember like waiting round for it to come on TV, and and I absolutely love it to bits. I still love it to bits. Um, and a, another reason I wanted to include it was because um, the, the man who wrote the song, the bass player in Fountains Away, and Adam Schlesinger, he he died uh, tragically kind of last year from complications due to COVID. And I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. Um, when we were looking for producers for our first album, we were we were kind of meeting lots of people. And a guy called Tim Pagnata from a band called Sugar Cult ended up producing that. But we met Adam and he was extremely generous with his time and his advice. And we did a few sessions with him. And he was just he was just one of the good guys. And anyone who knows anything about him knows he was... Um, he was extremely talented. He was nominated for every award under the sun, Oscars, Grammys, you, you name it, Emmys. He's, he, he, it really is a tragedy that he was lost so young. And uh, yeah, just one of the good guys. And um, yeah, I suppose long live Fountains of Wayne and long live Power Pop. Yeah. I think it's interesting because it's like when you, when you put it in context of the time of you know what else was going on. And I think what's what's interesting, I suppose, about it is it's such an American sound. I think this power pop stuff, and you're right. I think when you pick the cars and cheap trick, but particularly Big Star, I think you can see this. You know, let's not be afraid of writing a pop song, but it can also be really clever and really melodic. And then it's just a really, really good pop song as well. You know. Do you know what it is? It's kind of like they were all them bands, and you can include like like whatever Rick Springfield and Joe Jackson and all that stuff in as well. Yeah. It's like it's it's like they were unbelievably influenced by the British invasion and by kind of like the cleverness of the Kinks and the Beatles yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But they turned it into this like pure pure America. You know, it's yeah. like that Northern American sound, but it's very clearly influenced by like the yeah the cleverness of the British yeah. invasion. And, you know, and you, I mean, they, these things sound like they should all be with videos of, uh, you know, convertibles <laughs> driving down freeways or into the sunset because you think it works perfectly. You know, these are just it, it's almost a bit, I suppose, like what you're talking about, the Hal David and Burt Bacharach stuff, where they're insanely hummable tunes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're like earworms in the best sense, because you think that's a great start to a track. You think there's a really, really cool start to a track. Oh, now what's he done? That's also really cool. Oh, look yeah. what he's done with the chorus. Mm. Now, who'd have thought of doing that? Because that works really brilliantly. It's a deceptively complicated art writing it abs- it a, a simple pop song, you know? Yeah. Look, uh, look. you know, like a lot of people would say that the academic are a pop band, and I'm not going to refute that. I've always, yeah. as you can tell from my choices, I love <laughs> pop music. I'm very passionate about it. Um, so yeah, a band like this, I, I really like Fountains Away and I think they're quite underrated. Again, I think the uniqueness yeah. of them coming out at that time, surrounded by like like new metal and kind of new like new hip hop and yeah. uh, 
and like then like all the strokes and the kind of cooler indie stuff it was just it was if they were a really unique band they were like this little kind of very pure very innocent very un- unashamedly we are who we are yeah. power pop band at the time and, and um, fun you know fun, just, it's fun extremely yeah, fun you know but great musicians as well and you know put an awful lot of thought into something as i said completely and like from from like working with adam and stuff like he, he really was he was a, he was an incredible again c- composer he he um, yeah. it, it felt like all his pop songs were compositions and um yeah like you know do you remember that the, the movie that thing you do uh with yeah. tom hanks <laughs> like so adam yeah. adam's challenge for that movie was to write a pop song that sounded like it could have been a number one in 1963 right. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the way he crafted that song that sounds completely believable as it could have been a one hit wonder in mm-hmm. 1962, like yeah. to, to, to be able to like not imitate, but to be able to write in that mindset, it's, yeah, it's, I, it's an incredible achievement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it just shows, I mean, he was, I suppose he was just completely immersed in the music, you know, mm. and, it had seeped into every bit of them, I think so. And, you know, and I think you're like that, that it's a, it's, it's a very warm film, but it's a really warm song as well. Oh yeah. That you kind of think that's a great song. And you can almost at the same time go, yeah, but they're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what's think, so incredible yeah, that's about it. That's what it had to be, you know, it had to yeah. be. It had to sound like a band who was a one-hit wonder in a specific time, yeah. a specific yeah. place, yeah. in a specific, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. I don't know how yeah. he did it. It's uh, amazing. And I think what, sometimes it gets overlooked, I think, in music and sometimes is when you when you do get those kind of one hit wonders and sometimes, um, you know, that's it. You know, you don't have to be the Rolling Stones and go on no, for no. 9,000 years or whatever, you know. One of my one of my favorite recordings of all time and my karaoke song, I'll have you know, is a <laughs> Video Killer Radio Star by The Buggles. And to the best of my knowledge, The Buggles didn't have any other like big hits anyway. No, no. Um, and I, I, I would. I would die for that recording. I think it's brilliant, and I love that yeah, song. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, we're, we're we're nearing the end, so I was I was thinking we might take these last two together, um, because again, there's a, it, it's a shift in kind of what we've been talking about. Sure. Um, but also, I think one of the things that one of the sometimes when people send me their list, what I try and do is I have a look at them. I kind of think, yeah, is there any way to kind of group these, or does it make sense to put things together? And obviously, this is the way you sent it, but. Your last two choices are Kate Bush and Julie Cruz. And I think they have such unique voices. And, you know, they work in a sound space that is instantly recognizable. So I just thought, you know, well, we we talk about them separately, but I think it's interesting that you've picked, you know, these two particular artists who have a particular sound and have kind of carved out a space for themselves, um, particularly, say, Kate Bush, that is entirely self-directed, you know, she just seems to do what she wants to do when she wants to do it. And the same Julie Cruz just seemed to pop out of nowhere. Um, um, but we'll talk a little bit about it, I suppose. So you've picked Hounds of Love as the Kate Bush track from the Hounds of Love album. Yeah. So this was released in 1985. NME, when they reviewed it, they reckoned it was the best album of the year. And she had taken two or three years, I think, to make this album. Um, but why this one, Stephen? Um well, first of all, com- like completely agree that album, especially the side A of that album, is just maybe one of the best like side A's. It's is it running up yeah. that hill into Hounds of Love, uh, Cloud Bus is definitely in there, yeah. and oh, there was five big, tracks on the on big, the first side, yeah. yeah, yeah, and four well, of them were hit singles. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> but but I have to be completely honest about how I first came across this song. 
And it was when, again, I was a teenager and I first heard the Future Heads cover of Hound of, Hounds of Love. I don't know if you remember that, but it was, I suppose, like a mini hit yeah. for them. Yeah. They were a band from the north of England. And uh, I just remember loving the lyrics. I remember just, and the intro, and I remember thinking like, oh, I love the lyric, the found a fox caught by dogs, that, that whole verse. And just they're these really evocative, beautiful lyrics. And then I think I might have heard it in a video game, like a sports video game or something like that, or through the music video. And then again, it was my older brother, Matthew, who is uh, the guitar player in the band. He was like, I'm pretty sure that's a cover of an old song. Yeah. And I was like, are you sure? Are you sure that's not just the future heads? And lo and behold, YouTube. And I go on and I start listening to Hounds of Love, the original. And like you said, there are only a handful of times in my entire life where I've heard something musically and thought well i've never heard anything like this before ever i like the first time i maybe like roy orbison or like karen carpenter at bjork just something that seems truly unique Mm -hmm. and when hounds of love started and the sample from uh, that old english horror movie i can't remember which one but it's it's coming uh, it's in the trees that yeah um i was like every so often Every so often you just like strike a relationship with a piece of art that is like intimate and you know that it's like, oh, this is for me. You've 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 found who you were looking to find when you when you release this music. This is absolutely yeah. for me. And that's kind of how I feel about Hounds of Love. Um as an album, especially the A side, uh, I'm not like massively familiar with the with the back end of that, the kind of weirder side. But um I, I love I love Kate Bush, I love her lyrics, I love um especially Hounds of Love that the whole thing of like being chased by however you want to interpret that i've like a lot a lot of our music as the academic is kind of based around that idea of like the, the loss of innocence in, from mm-hmm. the end of your teenage years and transitioning into like being being an adult and i've always thought that that's kind of what kate bush um was maybe talking about with being chased by the hounds of love or uh, it's probably more obviously about love but you know that's again that's just that you you take away from it what, what, yeah. what you bring to it yeah and that's what i did yeah i i, I love kate bush yeah, such a, an astonishing album in lots of ways because, you know, on side A, there's five tracks, four of them were hit singles. And then on side B is just a sweet. It's weird. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and you kind of think, I'm sure at some point she probably, you know, the record company were going, oh, another hit single, oh, another hit single. Okay, let's turn it over. Okay, where's the song? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and then it's just Kate, like, can you not just write another single? And she obviously is going, no, this is it. This is no, what we're releasing, yeah, but- you know? That's the thing. It feels like very two distinct sides. Like I think yeah. that even the A side she refers to as Hounds of Love and then the B yeah. side is that one about her being on a boat or whatever it is. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. the kind of the vibier end of it. Yeah. But yeah, like truly, truly like an artist who never compromised for, yeah. for anyone or anything. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, like when you mentioned Bjork, you know, the same sort of way, you know, obviously as soon as you hear Bjork, you can't, you go, it's such a distinct, yeah. it's not, and again, it's not just her voice, but it's that approach. You know, it's just whatever the vision is and the vision as as much as possible, I guess, that's what, you know, she was trying to realize. And Bjork does the same, I suppose. And I think that's one of the great things about, you know, The Hounds of Love is that it's it's this fabulous mix of really, really cool melodies and, and then oddity. And um, I'm funny enough because we did... Hands of Love was I was picked by someone else a few weeks ago in one of these things that we were doing, oh, and really? I hadn't listened to it in a long time. You know, you just we just didn't listen to it. Mm. And the thing that I couldn't get over is it's only three minutes long. Yeah, and in my yeah. memory, it was at least ten minutes long, yeah. even though I knew it couldn't be, you know, because it was a single and all those mm. things. I was kind of thinking, 
Jeez, she squeezed so much into three minutes. Yeah. You know? So so many incredible parts to that song. Yeah. To to yeah. the point where the structure is actually tricky when you're listening back to it. You're like, what's she gonna say next? Oh, that part. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, um, I, don't, you know. I I also I also love the music video. I I am um, I, I hadn't yeah. I hadn't seen it in ages and then kind of in preparation for doing this, I looked yeah. at it again and um yeah, it's brilliant. Apparently yeah. it's inspired by is it Thirty Nine Steps, the Hitchcock movie and yeah, yeah. just um yeah, and she's uh, so cool in it, and her with her hair cut short. I think, I think again, you know, every twenty to twenty-five year old man and woman I knew at the time just fell instantly in love with her again. You know, it was, it was, um, I'm sure it was yeah. impossible not to. It, it, yeah. it, as a visual artist as well, like yeah. it, in her artwork, in her videos, also in like just how incredible looking she was. Yeah. I'm sure she was hugely inspirational to generations. Yeah. You know, and and again, I think that you know her ability musically as well, and and not just in terms of like, I think it was the, again, that notion of vision. She was, she had a fair light, I think apparently at the start of this. So she was demoing stuff and then starting to work with musicians, but she was dragging, you know, she was saying, no, no, I need the kind of sound that's a bar on. So I'll get a bar on player in and then I need something else. And so she obviously had a, it, it's not even that she had, I, I don't know if she had the clear idea in her head right away, but one thing I, I I always liked about this is is just how audacious she was to follow that, you know, to oh, yeah. you know to go no this is what I'm this is I'm this I'm after this sound and if if it means you know mixing this type of sound with this type of sound and underplaying it with some keyboards that's it that's what I'm going for you know but all, all them singles off Hounds of Love like that that's a good point they are very strange recordings like yeah. there's no doubt about it Hounds of Love is is weird there's no like yeah. particular. The, the like it's driven the, by the, the drums. Yeah, the way and the way the drums get pan yeah. and the way it's yeah. not really like a particularly solid beat. There's lots of space, yeah. and even like yeah. when you get running up the hill is like obviously one of the best pop songs ever. But it's like a strange. There's a strange textures in it where it doesn't feel particularly grounded. It feels very mm. kind of floaty. Yeah, and but that that just adds to the mystique of the album. And talking about floaty and 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 something that's that's not quite ground. That's not. Stuck on the ground. Your your final choice is Julie Cruz. It's falling, and it's from the album "Floating into the Night." Mm-hmm. So, Julie Cruz um, with Angela Bad- Badalamenti and David Lynch lurking in the background. Oh yeah. <laughs> so why this one then? This is kind of the opposite to the Bacharach thing that I was talking about earlier when I said I have no idea when some of them songs came to me. I can tell you exactly right. when this song came to me. Okay, It was my leave insert year and I was doing my mock exams and I was kind of, I, I knew I wasn't going to go to college. I knew I wanted to play with the band and that we were starting to get like busy and kind of, mm. I suppose, like reasonably successful at the time. And so naturally enough, I'm like 18 years old. I'm like in this band. We have a song on the radio. We're doing fun gigs up and down the country. To say I was uh, like disillusioned with the uh, with the leaving certificate is an understatement. I was, <laughs> I, be- I believe the technical term is Dawson. I was absolutely right. Dawson. <laughs> and I was, um, I was just, yeah, you know, like when you're, when you're that age, you want to like listen to and watch as many new things and experience yeah. new things as you can. And I'd seen one David Lynch thing before. I'd seen Mulholland Drive when I was about 16, I'd say. I read an article in Rolling Stone online where they were talking about their film critics were picking their favorite films of of like the deck, something like that, one of them lists. 
and I watched Mulholland Drive, and obviously it went over my head, but I kind of liked it, but I couldn't pinpoint why. And then during my leaving cert marks, I started watching Twin Peaks, and uh, like as soon as that first note hits the dum dum, I just for me that is like euphoria. I just feel at home. I feel at peace. It it came it came at a point in my life where you know like you're it's like an influential part of your life when you're like 17 18 and stuff and just um i started watching this tv show i liked how it looked i liked how the characters spoke i liked how they carried themselves i I liked everything about it and i couldn't explain why and um i've been a massive twin peaks fan to this day and that julie cruz song obviously it's the music from bad lamenti and the lyrics are from david lynch um it's just been incredibly influential in my life to say I'm a super fan of, of the TV show would be an understatement. I do think the greatest day of my life was when I was out outside Seattle um, in the diner. I went to Snoqualmie Falls. I was at the Great Northern <laughs> Hotel. I was in the Double R Diner. You name it, I did it. I yeah. did, to this day, I do think it was the single greatest day of my life. And again, kind of what I was talking about earlier is all my favorite pieces of, of art are very evocative and have this very signature sense of place and time. And that is Twin Peaks. You feel like it's a real yeah. place where you can live and the characters. And um, I, I, actually, I love Julie Cruz in it. And I love that song. I love how the instrumental is the theme song. But it, Julie Cruz is in uh, the second season in an episode called Lonely Souls. And without spoiling, obviously, the television show for anyone. There's this incredible scene where she's in the roadhouse and she's performing uh, Rocking Back Inside My Heart. And then it kind of transitions to... What's that other song? Uh, the World Spins, I think. And it's tough not to... There's something very kind of strange is revealed in the show. And it's the most incredible scene. There's like an apparition to, to Dale Cooper. The giant tells him it is happening again without spoiling it. And just everyone knows without knowing how they know. And Julie Cruz is singing... And Bobby Briggs is looking very stressed. Donna Hayward starts to uncontrollably cry. Dale Cooper looks like he's heartbroken. The log lady is there. And it's just so strange and so emotional. And I'll never forget seeing it for the first time. And just Julie Cruz singing on that stage. I could I could sit here and ramble about Twin Peaks for, for yeah. and, and David Lynch for for like another hour if but I don't think anyone wants to hear that. But I I love Falling as a song. I love Julie Cruz. Um I think her voice perfectly complements the kind of worlds that 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 David Lynch kind of brings to the screen. Yeah, and I think because um, uh, he started working with Bad Lamenti for on on Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, yeah. And apparently, what they were trying to do was they were trying to get um, the rights to Song of the Sirens, um, but this Mortal Coils version, and they couldn't afford it, you know, because of whatever the way the rights because Tim Bu- because yeah, yeah. it was Tim Buckley's song as well. So I think it was. It was a very expensive thing to get. So Lynch said, well, can we do something like that? And Bad Lamenti had worked with Julie Cruz before in some sort of theater workshop and said, oh, this woman I heard singing once had this, you know, odd ethereal voice. And and I think then, you know, they put it together and you think it's you're right. I think part of this is it's a combination of a lot of things. It's the combination of the three of them. You know, it's not just that it's the music. But it's mm. her voice, which is so unhurried, yeah. You, you know, and at the start of the song, which is lovely, it's this gorgeous melody, and then it just shifts a little bit to make it slightly less um, sweet. 
and then it goes back to it. But it, it's just so unhurried. The music is unhurried and the lyric is unhurried. And I suppose, well, going back to Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks is unhurried. Absolutely. There's reveals or not reveals. And you think, was something revealed or not? And you think, well, it doesn't really matter. you know? Yeah, yeah. Because it just slowly rolls and rolls along, just drags you along with it, you know? It's a beautiful collaboration between the three of them. I love Bad Lamenti as a composer. Like, I love, uh, like... Um, his is his stuff for Lost Highway and Blue Velvet and uh, oh yeah yeah oh the yeah. the fire the firewalk with me soundtrack is like yeah yeah it's unbelievably good it's too yeah. good and uh, his his incredible music mixed with her voice and then you can tell they're David Lynch's words when it's it's all about <laughs> oh, yeah. it's like uh you know when it's it's like this dreamscape and it's incredibly simple and it's the simplicity in which only he can make that kind of pure. And um, it's it's nearly like he this childlike wonder, yeah. Um, yeah, I I love uh, Julie Cruz again. Is just so interesting to, to watch as a performer as well. Mm. She the way she, the way she looks, the way she carries herself, the way she moves. It's very ethereal, very mysterious, and um, and yeah, I like that's that when I say like that that this is one of my comfort songs. Like when them first notes begin to play. Yeah. I, li- I literally, just, I transcend, I'm gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's a great place to finish, Stephen. Um, and uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's been it's been a real blast. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I think we could definitely invite you back and you could do the special shows, I think, just focusing on, you know, a particular artist or, you know, a suite of songs, maybe, you know. So I really appreciate it. Thanks Thank so you very much for, much for having this. me on. It's been lovely um, to talk through these songs. I think I've yeah. even like learned more about why I like them by talking through them. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's just been really nice. Thank you very much. Ah, cool. Listen, thanks so much. And everyone out there, thanks for listening to Vine Lars with Stephen Murtha on the First Thought podcast. Galway International Arts Fest would like to acknowledge the support of its principal funding agencies, the Arts Council and Folge Ireland, Galway 2020 European Capital Culture, Education Partner, NUI Galway, Festival Energy Partner Flow Gas and Drinks Partner Heineken. For more from Galway International Arts Festival, see GIAF.ie. I'm Tiernan Henry. See you next time.